Just a disclaimer to our listeners, this episode briefly talks about residential schools in Canada, so please take care while listening. We normally would edit it for clarity and cohesiveness, but we wanted to keep the conversation in its authentic form, so it might sound a little more choppy than normal through the intro. Welcome to Taste BC Radio, where we're going on a journey to explore restaurants, breweries, wineries, and just about anywhere where we can eat or drink local. I'm Jeff. And I'm Dan, and we are talking twice a month about local BC food and drink. If you want to join in on the conversation, follow us on Instagram or Facebook at TasteBCRadio, or email us at host at tastebcradio.ca. All right, tasters, let's get into it. So Dan, you know what today is? Sure do. It is July 1st. That's right. And in this land, uh, most of us know it as Canada Day, but we would like to do something a little bit different. So on that note, I am recording from the unceded traditional territories of the Coast Salish peoples of the Kikite and Quiquetlam First Nations. These nations were fishing nations located in the land known in English as New Westminster. The Kikite people were only recognized by the federal government in 1994 after thought to be extinct. Now with about 50 Kikite people, they hope to maintain their history and land. The Kwikwetlem people, named in their language after the red fish up the river, have a strong connection to their land, water, and ancestors. I am fortunate to reside on these lands, and acknowledgement for me is much more than just stating the nations, which is why we want to dedicate this episode to Indigenous-run businesses in the land known in English as British Columbia. And I am deeply grateful to be sitting here on the land of Lekwungen people, known today as the Esquimalt and Songhees Nations, and the Senchosin-speaking Wasanich people. Territory acknowledgements are always important, but it's specifically important today as we discuss food that was produced with ingredients gathered upon their lands. An acknowledgement is an important step, followed by furthering our education of their land prior to settlers arriving on their shores. The Lekwungen and Wasanich First Nations people were deeply rooted in nature throughout the land, a nature that supplied them with food and a way to trade with other nations. Often the names of different nations such as Lekwungen and Wasanich have special meaning behind them. For instance, Lekwungen roughly translates to a place to smoke herring, which references this area as a place where they and other nations would stop and smoke their herring. Wasanich is believed to translate to raised up or emerging people. And as David Elliott Sr. and Jeanette Poth state in their research book, Saltwater People, it references the shape of the land as you travel east on the ocean and how the land raises up over the water. I want to finish by saying that I'm new to this and that through researching this territorial acknowledgement, I have a better understanding of the history and culture surrounding Indigenous peoples in the area that I've lived my entire life. I have always wanted to do more towards education and reconciliation, and doing some more research for this territorial acknowledgement has really solidified my goal to do more to promote true reconciliation for Indigenous communities. Okay, so Dan, I don't know if you learned about residential schools in high school. I did. We didn't spend a whole lot of time on it, unfortunately, but we did actually learn about it, which I'm surprised to find out many of my peers never did and were shocked Mm -hmm. last year when all of the news stories of the discovery or confirmation of the graves came out. And um, so I thought it would be a good idea just to talk about it briefly before we get into this. Yeah. I know in high school, we spoke about it very briefly. Such a 
absolute tragedy what occurred at these residential schools. I think that puts it very mildly. It was an absolute... I can't even put it into words. The devastation and that it caused Indigenous communities, it's beyond words. So we're not reporters and we're not historians, but what I thought that would be appropriate for us to do is to share some of the key moments in the history of these uh, residential schools. Mm -hmm. Now, first of all, I've been doing a lot of research about this recently, uh, particularly for this episode and also because it's back in the news again. And I wanted to ask you, Dan, if you ever were taught some of the some of the details that I'm going to share with you. Most likely not, unfortunately. Yes. And I think that's why it's good to do this. And I don't think it's um, and I don't think it's bad if you don't know this information, bad that you never learned this information. But I do think that there is a culture building around being more educated about it. Yes. And I think that's really important. And I would like to share that with you as well. And in no way am I an expert, but I have learned a fair amount that I was not taught in school and I find very important to know. So Mm -hmm. first of all, do you know when the last residential school was closed? Well, it was sometime recently. It was like disturbingly recently. Um, I want to say- We were both alive. Oh my god. Uh, 1998? 1996. Oh, Jesus. And there was actually one that closed a year later, but it wasn't a state-run school. So it kind of doesn't make the books, but it still was the same concept. Right. Do you know the name that was given to when, in the 60s, the children were all stolen from their homes and brought into these schools? No. So it's called the 60s scoop, which is kind of exactly what it was, but also is a very delicate name for ripping children out of homes to uh, get hundreds of kilometers away and uh, get forced into learning different languages. Do you know what the translation is? And there's probably absolutely no way you know this, but do do you know what the translation is for residential schools in French if you translate it back into English? No. Boarding schools, which was also used in interchangeably the term with actual boarding schools. So right. in the, in French culture, people talk about boarding schools and it's either synonymous with residential schools or it's synonymous with actual boarding schools. Right. And which is why Trudeau Sr. was quoted saying, I went to a residential school, if you were to translate it into English. So I went to a residential school. Oh my god. A couple other things that were key aspects, which I'm sure you do know, is that the, the schools were run by joint between the government and the churches, which, yes. as is obvious, the church was brought over by the colonizers. Mm-hmm. The official purpose of the residential schools was to educate and convert indigenous youth to assimilate them into Canadian society. Which, if you think about it, who has more society, uh, a nation that has come over and stolen land and only been there for about 100 years versus nations that have been there for thousands? Thousands, yeah. An estimated of 150,000 children attended residential schools. Jesus. And an estimate of 6,000 died at or because of residential schools. 
the last I heard, that number is actually substantially lower than what is now being estimated. Yeah. In total, over 130 residential schools operated in Canada between 1831 and 1996. It's honestly, it's just so, it's so devastating. It's so tough because I am proudly Canadian, but in being proudly Canadian, there is this tragedy that is unresolved and just gets forgotten. Yeah. And last year there was a movement to cancel Canada Day in solidarity with the, the graves that were confirmed in Kelowna and Saskatchewan. And there were still some cities and, and groups that were actively celebrating and pushing for Canada Day to be celebrated. Yeah. Because I think that a lot of us grow up who are born here, a lot of us grow up just thinking, oh, it's Canada Day. And you don't think yeah. about what that means. Mm-hmm. And I absolutely was guilty of that until last year, honestly, in 2021. Yeah. One of the things that I was worried about with that was that, okay, everyone's going to care a lot about this this year. And then as soon as we come to next year, no one's going to care anymore. Yeah, And I'm quite afraid that that is accurate, which is why I think it's a very important episode for us to do. Because, you know, we want to make sure that we keep in mind always where we're residing. And we call it British Columbia. We call it BC. That's or that's in the name of this podcast. But we also acknowledge the fact that it's not BC to everybody. It's not Canada to everybody. We're here on lands that were never obtained through treaty and were never ceded. At any given point, we could be not allowed to be here anymore. Well, and it also, it came at a great cost to incredibly diverse culture and and people that we were here and that I don't feel like that has been truly acknowledged or truly understood and it's going to take a long time for us as a society to realize just how much of a cost that really was to an entire nation who was here well before us and one of the things that Canada likes to pride itself on is being multicultural and the irony just yeah it's yeah, so apparent. It really is. Yeah, we we do definitely pride ourselves on being very welcoming, very welcoming nation. And yet there's this an entire shadow behind all of that, or that is starting to become very apparent. I don't think we've done a very good job at acknowledging and, and talking about, especially in schools, as that this should be very much a part of our educational background. And it very well could be. Obviously, I haven't been in high school or middle school for a number of years now. And that may have changed, but at least when I went through high school, that was not the case. This was not a topic of discussion that was, right. well, that was talked about very much. I actually was fortunate enough to have a class in high school, and we were able to take it as our as one of our science electives called oh. uh, Indigenous Studies. A lot of us took it. I'm a, I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that a lot of people took it because they thought it was the easy mm-hmm. science study that you could take. But the material that we learned in that class was yeah. very interesting. Things like, think think about it. Realistically, if there hadn't been an indigenous people all across what's now called North America, it, it could be argued that settlers yeah, might not have survived. Very much so. Anyway, it's, it's really easy as second and a half and third generation white mm-hmm. Canadians to be, to grow up thinking that it's ancient history, but it, it's not. And we need to remember that and we need to acknowledge the fact that there are still 
incredibly vibrant nations on this land that are doing everything that they can to maintain their culture and their language. And every day that that's not supported is is one day closer to extinction. And, and just like the Kikite people, like they, they were thought to be extinct because they had numbers dwindling so low that it actually took someone going through historical archives to realize that she was Kikai wow. in order in order to re-establish the nation and get it get it recognized federally. Oh so we talk about globalization and, and cultures just being assimilated and we talk about the world becoming all English speakers or all obsessed with American culture and and not maintaining their own cultures and and we don't think about these ones that are just on the brink of extinction and that's not saying that every and that's not to say that every indigenous nation is on the brink of extinction some are flourishing and that's great to see but there are some that could just as easily go Mm -hmm. extinct completely as i'm sure you know dan the the storytelling and the historical the way that records were kept in most indigenous nations was verbal and through stories and through song colonizers came and said well if you don't have a map that shows where your nation is then we don't really care and if they said oh if you don't have your language written down then we don't really care and if you don't have your history written down then we don't really care so there's a lot of people doing really great things and uh this is absolutely the the bare minimum that that we can do and we might make mistakes along the way, and we hope to. We just hope to minimize those mistakes yes. and and do whatever we can to make sure that we're being supportive. But we want to make sure that we we do it and we do it right. One hundred percent. So I hear you have a great place to tell me about. I sure do. Yes, I do. So Jeff, I'm really excited to tell you my topic for this week, which is the song he's food truck. Ooh, and so. In the area known as a Squimalt, there is a, uh, a permanent spot for the Songhees food truck. So in 2016, Chief Ron Sam had been considering a food truck and w- was approached by the CEO of the Victoria Clipper, which if you don't know, the Victoria Clipper is an express ferry that travels, it's mostly a passenger ferry, that travels from downtown Victoria to Seattle. Okay, yeah, because I didn't know that, ah, so perfect. I'm glad you Good. said. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, and they formed a partnership. They found a uh, chef, Dave Roger, who actually used to be the executive chef Marriott in the Inner Harbor, started the Songhees Seafood and Steam, which was placed at the Victoria Clipper, and it started of May of that year. And what it prides itself on mostly is, one thing, it was the first fully owned and operated food truck that was strictly run and operated by an indigenous community in Canada. So really cool that this was the wow. first. For the next two years, they operated strictly in front of the Victoria Clipper in downtown Victoria. Very nice spot, very popular. And in 2018, the Songhees Nation took full ownership of the food truck and rebranded it as the Songhees Food Truck. In April of 2020, the food truck opened at its permanent location on Admiral's Road. And obviously at the end of this segment, I'll give you the exact address. So if you're in the area, you can go check it out because they have fantastic food. So they stay in one place? All year. Yeah. And I believe they're open every day except for Monday. Monday they're closed. Yeah. And so 
what they really pride themselves on is modern cuisine with traditional Songhees delicacies tied in there. So lots of fish and uh, vegetables that are actually grown on the rooftop of the Songhees Wellness Center, which is a spot <sighs> down the road from where the food truck sits. It's literally amazing. Uh, 200 meters down the road, which is incredible. And so all the meat and everything as well is all locally sourced on Vancouver Island and BC. All of their sandwiches are made with uh, bannock as well. And some of their appetizers include bannock bites, which is a traditional Songhees bread that is absolutely delicious if you've never had it before. Phenomenal. So really, really amazing spot. When you actually go there, you can see the truck. They've got a new cedar covering for an outdoor patio. So it's a really lovely place, rain or shine, to go and enjoy some phenomenal food. Really, really tasty food. Amazing. So to give you an idea of how much this mean, meant to um, at least one person from the Songhees Nation, Chef Dave Roger, who started uh, started back in 2016, the food truck, and he actually was the executive chef at the Marriott Inner Harbor, so right down the road from where the truck opened up. He was the one who helped build the food truck to operate in his kind of mind's eye. So Songhees traditional delicacies with a modern twist. And you can see all kinds of their own traditional cuisine uh, it, within their menu. So lots of fish, like I said, even their sauces tend to have fruit and plant-based additives to it. So they often use a stinging nettle mayo in their salmon burger and a Saskatoon berry barbecue sauce. Oh, so amazing. super interesting little variations on kind of modern cuisine. So it's far reaching, but it also gives you a really, really close idea of what uh, traditional Songhees cuisine would be would be like. So very, very cool. It started in conjunction with a, a project done by the local university to encourage more Indigenous peoples to uh, kind of give them an opportunity to be introduced to the restaurant industry. So along with that, the university provided financial assistance for them to be, go into the culinary arts programs within the university. So it was a really cool project that happened simultaneously. Amazing. So it's really, really Really cool, yeah. And all the all the people who work at the food truck are from the Songhees community. So it's fully run and operated by the Songhees, which is I think is a really, really amazing way to honor and to showcase their cuisine. So I'm looking at their website. Yes. It looks like they also are starting to do farmer's markets. Yeah, so they're starting to do mar uh, farmer's markets, absolutely, and also catering as well. Right. So they've obviously expanded the business side of things and are able to provide their authentic cuisine to a number of different events and really showcase what their traditional cuisine is all about yeah. in really special ways and in special events. So have, very, very cool. Have you had a chance to look at their menu for events no i haven't actually oh man so, okay so they have they have a a spot on their website where they have um, catering options and they have breakfast breaks lunch dinner and reception breakfast they have for example house-made house-made pastries also includes bannock mm -hmm. creamy maple butter and house-made saskatoon berry so cool for breakfast they also serve you know, smoked salmon platters uh, turkey or beef sausage. Um, I noticed on their regular menu, they also have a bison sausage, yes, which is pretty cool. That is super cool. For their breaks, they've got what looks like just such incredible snacks. And okay, I've been snacking like crazy lately. So <laughs> I have the final say on what is a good snack. Yeah. Donuts and bannock bites. 
like you mentioned before, those are awesome. Anyway, going through their menu just looks absolutely incredible. And I would, I wouldn't expect this from a food truck, no, any food truck. So it's really cool that they're able to do this out of their space, which is a food truck, right? I imagine they probably also have a commissary or a prep kitchen where they, they work out of. I believe so, yes. And I believe it's part of yeah. the uh, Songhees Wellness uh, Center as well, from my understanding. Right. One of the one of their mainstays early on when they first opened was they had bison tacos. And oh, wow. I know. So it's part of their catering menu now. I don't... I didn't see it on the menu of their food truck. However, they do change their menu seasonally. Right. And so they'll do different specials every every week, it looks like, just on their Facebook page, which newly started. That's awesome. Yeah, so I oh, I don't know. I don't think I've ever had bison. Um, so I really, okay. really want to try it now. It looks so good. Oh, So I have had bison. Yeah. And it's just, it's like beef, but a little gamier and a little bit juicier. Oh, sounds so good. But I mean, you know, it's kind of tough because the bison that we would eat if we were to get it is probably farmed. So it's probably very similar process to cattle. Mm -hmm. Here's a couple things that really stood out to me. Lavender scented wild BC salmon. I was, you know, it's so funny. I'm literally just looking at that right now. Yeah. It sounds so good. Red onion marmalade and chive scone. Hello. Oh, yeah. And yeah, you said they have braised bison meatballs, mini bison tacos, Venison sausage rolls, brisket sliders, caribou and candied figs. Oh, super cool. That is so cool. Pheasant and pistachio, dark maple and rosemary glaze with chicken and waffles. Oh, fried chicken and bannock waffle. Yes. Come on. (laughs) That is amazing. (laughs) That's awesome. Absolutely. Oh, their donuts. There's a picture of their donuts. They look so good. Oh, yeah. Awesome. Well, that sounds delightful. Next time we're over there, we'll have to go check it out. Oh, 100%. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's awesome. Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable. It looks so good. And you said you were going to give the address? Yes, the address of the f- of the food truck, their, their permanent location is 1502 Admirals Road. Definitely check it out. Okay. It is worth the trip. Yeah, definitely. Have you noticed that two of your last three have all been located in Esquimalt? I know. It's a really happening place for food. <laughs> I tell you. Branch out a little bit, Dan. <laughs> hey, Jav. On this show, we like to highlight specific food and drink items in addition to the venue. So let me, let me just ask you, what have you been drinking this week? So... In the interest of this episode, I want to talk about a couple wines that I've had from a little winery in the area known as West Kelowna called Indigenous World Wines. Mm-hmm. So I had the pleasure of getting to try their Hihi Telkin White Blend, mm-hmm. their Pinot Noir, mm-hmm. and a bubbly called Hoinam Hoinam. Mm. But I particularly want to talk about the Pinot Noir. As we talked about in our last episode, the northern part of the Okanagan is not great for deep heavy reds but the southern part is but this Pinot Noir being a lighter grape grows beautifully there right and the the winery uses grapes from both the Okanagan and Similkameen valleys so they get the best of both worlds they can choose what grapes they want to use for for what blends the Pinot Noir the single varietal is very good uh, I find that a lot of wineries from the Kelowna area tend to err on the side of sweeter wines. Yeah. And 
the Pinot Noir was not sweet at all, which is very good. Mm-hmm. The winery itself overlooks the Okanagan Lake and is just off the 97 Highway. Actually, it's very close to Volcanic Hills. Oh, so, look at that. <laughs> speaking of wine, uh, listeners remember from the last episode, I spoke very highly of Volcanic Hills. Well, this is just down the street, so... Maybe a road trip is in order. Oh, yeah. The winery likes to boast merging modern culture with indigenous history. Mm-hmm. Just directly from their website, they say that the concept of the indigenous world wines emerged as Robert and Bernice's way of combining the unique terroir of the valley and the indigenous people's stewardship of these lands. So that's really great because every one of the bottles comes with a bit of history from from the purpose of the winery itself. Yeah. And then it also talks a little bit about the grapes and what's in the blends, if appropriate. Yeah. And they just have these absolutely beautiful artwork on the labels. I'm looking at the website now and they're all just beautiful. Just gorgeous. Yeah. I started to drink more and more of their wine. Mm -hmm. uh, And uh, I'm I'm very glad I did. The, The Pinot Noir is great. It's, it's the perfect balance between heavy and light. So It's very drinkable in the summer, but it also will hold its own in the winter. It'll pair nicely with red meat. It'll pair nicely with white meat. It'll pair nicely with just drinking it on the patio in a campfire or or whatever. The bubbly was really good too. I was worried, again, because I find a lot of white bubblies to be too sweet for my palate. This one had just the right carbonation and the right tartness that it was super, super easy to drink. And it's a metal pop top on the bottle. Yeah. For the bubbles. So you got to drink it in one sitting. So it better be good. And it was absolutely no problem whatsoever. So <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah, I, I think I think it's definitely worth checking out. I would love to go try the other wines from their winery as well. It's less than two minutes off the 97 highway. So if anyone's passing through, go check them out. Unlike a lot of small wineries, they have quite a large selection. Yeah. Every one of them is worth a try. The other thing, they also produce spirits. What? No so way. they, yeah, they produce vodka, gin, and whiskey. Oh, oh my god! And I've only been able to try the vodka. Yeah. I don't normally drink vodka straight, so it's... <laughs> <laughs> I haven't had the pleasure of trying the whiskey or the gin, but the vodka held its own. Excellent. And you know what? Just another reason to go back to try the whiskey. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So tell me what you've been drinking. Well, I've got from, from a similar area... Not too far away, a wine by Inkmate Winery. They are out of Soyuz, like kind of like actually really, really close to Moon Cursor, which is where what, the winery that I talked about last time, Inkmate Cellars, was North America's first indigenous run winery. Well, since they've been open, they have been absolutely crushing it. They have an amazing, amazing wine tasting area, super open concept. Crush, crushing it? <laughs> like, Crushing grapes. Crushing grapes. Yeah, exactly. You caught my you caught my <laughs> wine pun. Nicely done. I actually went to the winery last time, or actually the first time we went to a Soyuz, and we're just taken aback by how beautiful the area was. You're overlooking, same as Moon Cursor, you're overlooking a Soyuz from the north side, and you just get a beautiful view of a Soyuz lake and the town. Really large patio as well, so knowing a Soyuz is going to be hot and warm in the summer. So a perfect area to enjoy some of their amazing wines. They also are now in the wine village. Are they? Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to tell me more about this wine village later. 
I know. Because it sounds amazing. <laughs> Maybe we'll do a whole segment on it. Yeah, there you go. Maybe next time. In terms of the wine that I want to talk to you about, it's their Syrah. For myself and my wife, when we first went to a Soyuz, we were not used to these deep, complex reds. And we have just fallen in love with Syrah, the, the varietal. And Inkmeep Syrah is absolutely brilliant i'll kind of go over the tasting notes i think they're very accurate how they how they taste so you've got at the beginning it's more of like a fruitiness to it so you've got blueberries and violets and and then it finishes off with a really nice spicy peppery finish which is exactly what my wife and i both love without being overpowering it's just a really nice deep complex red i found it absolutely delicious again if you're in the soyuz area this is a this is a winery to to put on your list 100%. And since they've been open, they their wines have just been cleaning up awards left, right and center, like all the way back to 2010. They won silver and the National Wine Awards, premium 3 years later in the National Wine Awards. The list goes on and on and on. Most recently, back in 2018, I believe. Yeah, their Riesling won silver in the Intervin Wine Awards and Wine-Align. So they are an incredibly talented winery who any of one of their wines are really good, but I strongly recommend their Syrah, especially if you're not, or if you're kind of getting into the more deep, complex reds. This one is a really, really good one to start with. Amazing. Excellent. Well, Jeff, what do you got for me this week? Okay, well, let me take you on a journey. Ooh. We're going to go back all the way to the 1920s. Uh-huh. This is in the area now known as North Vancouver. Uh-huh. This was before the time of the Lionsgate Bridge. Wow. For those who don't know, the Lionsgate Bridge was put in by the Guinness family to connect West Vancouver to Vancouver through Stanley Park. It was a toll bridge, and now it's not. But people can't imagine that landscape without the Lionsgate Bridge. It's even been featured in movies. Exactly, yeah. It's in a lot of movies. So before all that, there was a man by the name of Chick Chamberlain. And he and his brother opened a couple coffee shops. And then Chick decided to open a restaurant. And this was right when the Great Depression was starting. He knew nothing about having restaurants. He didn't know anything about running them or or cooking or anything. Mm -hmm. But he decided to open one anyway and built a log cabin directly on the ground, no parking lot, just an area where cars could pull up. And keep in mind, back then, cars were sparse, roads were sparse, but here was the forward thinking. The restaurant is called Tomahawk Barbecue. And we're coming up on 100 years now of this place being open. Wow. They opened in 1926. For people who know the restaurant, actually, they know that it's it's almost gone out of business several times, but it's managed to survive, community rally around it. It's a staple on the North Shore it was even featured one time on Dine-Ins, Diners, and Drives no. on the Food Network. Really? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that was a good little boost for them. But I remember growing up being a young adult, going there all the time for breakfast. I actually never have been for dinner, but I would go and just crush their massive breakfast. And I remember it was like 13 or $14 at the time, and I could put back food, and I would just crush these massive <sighs> plates of food. Do you remember what your uh, breakfast of choice was? I don't. Was? I don't remember what it was. Um, the menu, I think, has changed a bit since then. Right. Um, yeah, but I remember great. specifically trying to get the biggest plate I could. <laughs> so, in opening this restaurant, Chick was known to exit the restaurant, go up to people's cars, take their orders, go back into the restaurant, cook it, 
himself and then bring it back out to the car and give it to them. He wow. did he did everything. And back when he first opened, he would sell sandwiches for 10 cents. And because it was the depression and because people were so poor, sometimes they would offer trades of artwork for a sandwich or artwork for whatever. Wow. And some of that art is still displayed in the restaurant today. What? Oh my goodness. So it's really quite interesting. The restaurant is still owned and operated by the family, I believe by his son currently. And they have mm -hmm. two totem poles outside that kind of guide the entrance into the restaurant, one on either side of the entrance. And they were made by Chief Mateus Joe. They were cards to commemorate the 1939 official opening of the Lionsgate Bridge. So once that happened, then mm. they became part of the Tomahawk dynasty. They have bacon. They call it Yukon bacon. And it's made at a local smokehouse. And then it's sold exclusively to Tomahawk. So they're the only place in the world, I guess, that you can get it. What? Yeah. And they have a bunch of hamburgers named after some of the chiefs in the area. Right. So in a way to commemorate those chiefs, they have the Sukum chief, Chief Capilano, Chief Raven, Chief Dominic Charlie, Chief August Jack, and some of their, their burgers over time have been named after those. Again, with oh, yeah. the the menu, a lot of them are kind of what you would expect at a, a, a general eatery of any kind. And so they have, they're, mm -hmm. they're following the trends of today. And But when you get into their lunch and dinner, you start to see some of the indigenous heritage coming out in a lot of their, their food. They still have some Western influence on it, but done very mm -hmm. kind of classically. So they have a beef dip. You can choose either barren or beef. They have the BLT that they make with their Yukon style bacon. And then they have the Tomahawk powwow, which is three grilled wiener slices, grilled Yukon style bacon, lettuce, tomato, and their special sauce. So yeah, their food is what I would consider classic for kind of diner eateries, and they do it extremely well. The The most incredible, or the best part about this place is, is their history. If you walk in, uh, you can see all this artwork from over the time. It's almost so out of place that it's perfect, because it tells the story of oh, why do you have Betty Boop? And why do you have Tweety Bird like side by side? Or why do you have this piece of ceramic artwork? And it's really incredible. And you walk in and then they have, it's almost like a gift shop where they have some stuff, traditional style art or carvings or even things like keychains and stuff that kind of talk about the restaurant or talk about the land that it's on. It's still in the log cabin. I think it's been restored because apparently when they first built the cabin, the logs being on the ground just immediately fought dr with dry rot. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's it's kind of nestled in the southern part of North Vancouver, just in the, in between the two bridges. It's around the corner from this little strip mall with oh, no. a Tim Hortons oh. and a Burger King, or I, I can't even remember what's there now. Right, you know, it's like a baseball diamond around the corner, and it, it's just kind of nestled in there. And it's one of those places where if you didn't know it was there, you might not see it, or you might not think yeah. to go to it because it's just kind of it almost looks like it's almost built like a longhouse, and so it's it's super out of place in the landscape and the developments in the area. But that's what just makes it like so incredible. And as soon as you walk in the doors, you feel like you're out of the city. Right. And you could be anywhere because once you're inside, there's there's no association with being out in the city. So yeah, I recommend going to check it out. Like I said, breakfast was my jam. So make sure 
make sure to check out breakfast yeah. check out their all their carvings and pay special attention to the the totem poles too because they they're just delightful <laughs> all this breakfast talk is making me hungry <laughs> again first i need second <laughs> breakfast now i need some of that yukon style bacon that sounds absolutely fantastic road trip to north vancouver anyone <laughs> yeah I, I mean if you get a chance you should check out them on diners diners and drives if you just google the restaurant and then the name of the show yeah it'll bring you to the clip and it's yeah it's great i had gone a bunch i think i can't remember if it was before or after and i just didn't know about the show and then years later i saw it on the show and i was like oh my god i need to go back but now or i don't i don't live anywhere near it so it's hard to get back to the north shore for any reason other than to see my parents yeah these days so well, and if the, for the people who don't live in North Vancouver, getting across the water on either bridge is an absolute nightmare. Yeah, it can be. Yeah, so you have to commit. You have to know. You have to know what times to go oh, yeah. and, and commit to it. So, yeah. but if you're on the North Shore, <laughs> or if you're planning on being on the North Shore for more than twenty four hours, definitely go check this place out. Absolutely. So Tomahawk Restaurant is located at one five five zero Philip avenue in north vancouver go check it out <laughs> honestly it's worth going in to check out even if you're not planning on eating there and you go in to check it out they have a huge collection of west coast nations artifacts a memorabilia from the north shore over the last hundred years so well and those totem poles sound worth going to see as well a huge piece of history exactly yeah amazing well, that about wraps it up for this leg of our journey. Taste BC Radio is recorded, edited, and produced by Jeff Wilson and me, Dan Kavanaugh. You can continue the journey and check out everywhere we talked about today in the show notes. Make sure to follow us at Taste BC Radio on Instagram and Facebook, and we'd love to have you join our community on Patreon. Tune in next time to find out what we will be tasting next. And never miss an episode by subscribing on your podcast app. In the meantime, make sure to rate and review the show. This really helps us grow, and we really do appreciate the feedback. And until next time, remember, supporting local is a vote with your wallet.